You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I am Kyla Lee at Acumen Law, and with me as usual-ish is Paul Doroshenko. I was dragged in here today. I don't even know what our topics are. We had like no time to talk about it at all. Oh, I like to take you by surprise. That's okay. I'm ready to go. Well, the first thing I wanted to talk about since I just ate a burger and it's on my mind is cell phones at the drive-thru. Oh, I couldn't believe that. What were they thinking? What? Who? Who? What were who thinking? The The police? police. Yeah. Yeah. What were they thinking? And we're not talking about a public road. We're talking about a private driveway, a driveway that is restricted use. Um, I, I, I can't believe that they were doing that. Well, it's interesting because in... So for those who don't know, who haven't seen this completely viral story, um, the Surrey RCMP were spotted uh, giving a driver a warning, apparently there was no ticket issued, but a warning about using an electronic device in the drive-through of a fast food restaurant in Surrey. And this sparked outrage for pretty much the reasons you described, that a drive-through is public, or not public property, but private property. And the Surrey RCMP in their press release responding to this story said, well, you know, we don't actually ticket people in drive-throughs, and they we better not. We wouldn't they do that. Better not ticket people in drive-throughs. But also, a drive-through is a public roadway. That's ridiculous. It is ridiculous. Why do well, they should have apologized? They should have just said, you know what, we don't ticket people in in drive-throughs, and the police officer was an overreach for him to go and give a lecture to somebody in a drive-through. Well, That's apparently, stupid. he was doing something else, and then added it into his lecture. Yep. None of his damn business here in a drive-thru. But I thought, you know, since they made this statement that they think, this bald statement with no... Support whatsoever no in, support in law. In law. Or... Um, I thought we would spend a minute talking about what is the definition of roadway and where do the cell phone provisions apply? Well, you're going to have to enlighten me. Because okay. I'm sure you thought about it and I haven't. <laughs> well, of course I've thought about it. Um So the Motor Vehicle Act uh, has a definition of highway uh, in the definition section, like every legislation does, has a a definition. And highway is defined as any private place, public place, passageway, um, or roadway to which the public has access or is invited for the purposes of parking or servicing motor vehicles. So if you just looked at that very broad definition of highway, you could conclude that a, um, that a drive-through falls within the definition of highway. The prohibition against using electronic devices while driving, the cell phone law says a person must not use an electronic device while op- driving or operating a motor vehicle on a highway. So it has to be a highway. Now, I argued a case in October 2013 BC Supreme Court case. Yes, a BC Supreme Court case where it was an IRP. My client was in a parking lot of the uh, Delta Pinnacle Hotel in downtown Vancouver. This is a private parking lot restricted by gate access um, with rented stalls. 
and uh, he was stopped by an officer in that parking lot and issued ultimately issued an IRP. It's like having it issued to you while you're in your garage. Well, of exactly. Your home. Yeah. That was that was the question whether or not it was a highway, and so I got to argue a very fulsome definition of whether this parking lot for a hotel fell within the definition of highway. Ultimately, the judge agreed it did not, but um, there is a very wide body of case law on interpreting that specific section of the Motor Vehicle Act that goes all the way back to the House of Lords. Well, why not? They had a lot of drive-thrus. Um, yeah, right. <laughs> so there was a, a case... they were driving on the wrong side of the road, that's all. Yeah, so the um, prior to my case, the most recent pronouncement from the BC Supreme Court was in a case called Yago, J-A-G-O. And that case was a driveway. Mr. Yago was in his driveway, well, his father's driveway. There was a dispute. The police were called, and Constable Tate, who you and I met in mm-hmm. Nelson. Yep. Nice guy. Very nice guy. Um smartly blocks Mr. Yago from leaving and entering the roadway, trapping him in the driveway. Unfortunately, Constable Tate then issued him an IRP. Yeah. Can't issue an IRP in a driveway. And in Yago, there's this huge um, analysis of the word highway in the Motor Vehicle Act, looking back at the definition, which in every version of the Motor Vehicle Act, all the way back to 1933, has remained the same. Has it? Yes. Since the dirty 30s. Since the dirty 30s, which to me is very clear legislative intent because you've had, I don't know, what, 85 years? I'm not good at math. Decades and decades and decades. Going back to the dirty 30s. Sure. That long to change the law, to amend the definition, to make it broader or to make it more narrow and to address these concerns. And has the legislature done anything to change it? No. Has the legislature kept it exactly the same all this time? The hue and cry of British Columbians desperately wanting the definition to be changed. Of So the court refers to, in Yago, a bunch of cases. One is called McMeekin. And in McMeekin, this is, you'll love this one, because it's a drive without due care and attention. Oh, 144. They're your favorites. Miss right. um, McMeekin is charged with driving without due care and attention on the basis of like basically doing donuts in the parking lot of her apartment complex. But was she paying attention? Well, I think the donuts was the undue care part. Okay. (laughs) Anyway, um, she appealed her conviction at trial, took it to the county court, as it then was, um, and argued that her apartment complex was not a highway or industrial road on the basis of the fact that it was posted with signs indicating that it was for tenants parking only. So even though it was open to the public, anybody could just drive in there. It was for tenants only. It was for tenants only. And she was allowed to do donuts. And the county court, which is once upon a time the Supreme Court, agreed. What year was that? Uh, 80-something. Okay, that was before Tim Hortons really became a big thing. Sure. Doing donuts used to be... Right. You, we all had rear-wheel drive cars, and that was one of the things you did when you first got a car, I remember I've never done a donut. Oh, well, you don't know what you're missing. I've eaten a lot of donuts, though. I know that. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Can we do a podcast about all the donuts I've eaten? This is a driving law podcast. Back to uh, the drive-thrus and uh, Tim Horton's drive-thrus and lack of drive-thrus in the UK and uh, 86 years of a definition of uh, highway. But there is also a case called Harrison and Hill, 
This is a case from the House of Lords, and it is the closest thing to a drive-through. It was a farmhouse that had like the did business. I don't know what type of business drive-through. Drive-through eggs. Yeah, drive-through eggs and farm produce or something. Mm. I don't know, but it was a farmhouse, <clears throat> and then there was a road that connected the farmhouse to the adjoining property, which was the farm. And there was somebody who was charged with some motor vehicle infraction on that adjoining road. And in Harrison and Hill, the court came to a bunch of conclusions about the definition of highway, which way back then was the same definition that it is now, which is that um, that uh, it is only applies to circumstances where people who enter by legal right or express implication and as a matter of fact do so unmolested by the owner. So no risk that you could be towed or removed by the owner. Um, so if you think about places where people commonly get IRPs like um, ferry lineups, potentially not highways because your right of access is controlled by the gate. As a matter of fact, you enter molested by the owner. I don't like that word, but I guess in 1935 it meant something different. And then uh, they also talked about people who have occasion for business or social purposes to go to any part of the farm or farmhouse itself and found that public access to private roadways um, did not include those special class of persons who were there for a business or social purpose directly related to the property's ownership. So if it is a property to which the public is invited or has access, but that Im Im the invitation is expressly or impliedly limited to the purpose of the property, like a drive-through is, yeah. it's not a highway. <clears throat> there you go. So while the Surrey RCMP might make some bold statements that are unsupported by law, uh, I well, I just made the legal argument for anybody. There you go. Anybody who's got that ticket, they can decide whether or not they want to run that argument. They probably should hire a lawyer, though. Probably should. Do a little bit more research yeah. and see if there is... Don't just li listen to my podcast. And... Something not just from what was in the House of Lords. There might be something from the uh, Manitoba Court of Appeal. Do you know of a Manitoba Court of Appeal case? No, I'm just saying. Oh, okay. know, just, I thought don't... you were going to surprise no. me with like no. a Are you kidding? sudden case. I'm not going to surprise you. With it. I, <laughs> I would prepare. If I knew the topics, I would prepare. Usually I at least think about them a bit. Well, I don't, I don't know. know what the topics are going to be. Are we okay. done topic one? We are done topic one. Surrey RCMP did not issue a ticket. It's, it's suggested that they would, had issued a ticket. It sounds to me like a police officer gave a lecture that was unwarranted. Um, and it's the typical overreach that you see of the police. Well, no? I, no? When it comes to cell phone laws, there's a lot of overreach. But I think in part that's because we haven't had enough clarification from the court. Well, we'll keep. Conducting hearings and yep. see what happens. Exactly. So if you ever did get a cell phone ticket in a drive-thru, call me. I I actually really want to litigate this. I'm sure you do. Yeah. Um, as you can see, I'm well prepared. <laughs> I'm sure you are. Okay. Um, topic number two. Topic number two. And I know this one's hard for you to talk about as a parent, but I want to talk about that case involving the baby that died in the car. Not to talk about that but to talk about the government's response i don't know what the government's response was all i know is i saw the story on castanet and i couldn't read it any further because i can't read it any further well since the sort of public discussion about that mike farnworth has come out and said that maybe there needs to be some 
effort made by government to create legislation around this. What are you legislating? Well, exactly. <clears throat> well, you could thing. legislate not to leave your child alone in a car. That's already legislated. Is it? Yes, it's called I criminal it negligence. Is. Yeah, but if you leave, if you run into 7-Eleven on a cool, rainy day and your car child's asleep in the back seat and you're just running in to get some smokes, I mean, is that criminal negligence? It's not. No, but your child also isn't going to die in that circumstance. That's the point. It's the risk. But maybe we, I mean, maybe what he's suggesting is that we need to totally separate the idea of leaving your child in a car unaccompanied when the child is not, like, old enough to open the door and figure it out on their own. Right. Like... Like not in a booster seat. Yeah. Like, when your kid's seven or eight years old, they're going to figure out to open the door, probably. One would hope. Well, I mean, it depends on your <laughs> if you child. If you raise them I'm right. I'm just saying, like, I, I'm trying to take into account, my kids would have been fine much younger than that, but I'm trying to take into account different children. Right. You know, but I, I don't, I don't know. Like, I don't think we need to legislate every tragedy away. Tragedies are going to happen and we can't craft legislation to deal with everything that might arise. And every time something horrific happens, we shouldn't just respond by spending taxpayer money legislating. How many cases of this are there a year in BC? Well, I, I, like I, it's, one? No, no, it's not. not it even. doesn't happen every year. It doesn't yeah. happen every year. So when why it do happens, we need legislation? It's tragic. It's horrible. Um, well, I can see, no, I, I, I mean, I can see the, you know, maybe if we ticket people, there would be some, um, general deterrence, greater knowledge about it. You know, unfortunately, that's the way that we view educating the public. Um, you know, you could do some education about it. The problem is that, you know, every one of these cases comes down to the same thing. It's always somebody who's dealing with some other nightmare in their life and something goes wrong and they've left the kid in the car and yeah. they've like forgotten about the fact that they left the kid in the car. Well, there and is a case actually this week out of Arizona <clears throat> where a father left his kid in the car on purpose while he went and got drunk with a friend that's at their different. house that's and different. he's charged with manslaughter and rightly so. Yeah, that's different. Um, not every time, every one of these things just makes me so, it's so hard for me to talk about. I know. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's really difficult for me to talk about, but I, I just think like it's not in, in very few cases, is it something where the person intentionally did this? They're probably going through something difficult, horrible, or they are struggling. Like they may be a person who has some other problems and issues mm -hmm. and we don't we don't legislate to say that you know if you're not all there you can't have a child um you know we, yeah, we specifically you get, you got get away from that because you made a mistake with your child and now you have to pay a fine yeah i mean it's like, what what is the result of this going to be a ticket does it go on the driving record i mean the parent could have some significant cognitive issue right sure uh, it doesn't you know just because you've got a driver's license and a kid doesn't mean that you're fully functional human on the planet, you might have all sorts of different problems. And there's they, things that can happen after you've had your kid that then change sure, your cognitive exactly. ability. You can exactly. get a head injury. Exactly. Or you could just not have slept well and not be thinking clearly. No, I mean, there's there's so many reasons, um, which is why, you know, I I think education is very important, but I'm not, I'm not 
saying that it's not necessary to create a shorter leash in the sense that um, creating an offense where leaving your child in the car in any circumstance when they are under the age of seven, leaving them alone in any time is just inappropriate and incorrect. Now the problem of course is that, you know, like you've got the rainy day and you've got your kid in the car and you're going to run into the bank and some banks have drive-through banks and some of the bank machine you've got to park your car. And, and there's no real risk if you leave them you've got on a nice cool winter day. Well that's the thing, you've got your, your, your three-year-old's asleep in the child seat and it's pretty safe. I didn't do it. I never did. Um, I always grabbed my kids and brought them in and I, not because I was concerned about the weather, I was concerned about the car lighting on fire. Cars light on fire. I've had cars that lit on fire, and that's what concerned me. And that happens a lot more than people leave their kids in their car. But we don't have legislation to make people not light their cars on fire. Well, it's not that the people are lighting the no, cars I know, on fire. I mean, the, the, like, the, cars light on car fire. The car manufacturers keep it from happening. BMW had a big problem with cars lighting on fire. People had to flee and get their kids out of the child seat. Um, so that was the reason that I didn't do it. And uh, I... I, I Personally, I mean, maybe I was paranoid, but I just never felt that it was wise to leave my child in a car unattended at any time. Now you're making me feel really guilty because at this moment in time, my dog is in my car. And it's raining outside it's and your raining, dog's asleep. And it's like 10 degrees out. He's totally fine. And your dog's asleep. But what if my car catches on fire? The probability is it's not. <laughs> um, and... Um, I know you have trouble, you view a dog as the same as a human, and many people do, and I get that, but... And you you don't, and you don't like my mental comparisons of dog as the same as child. No. Um, but I, you know, treat your dog with respect as, uh, you know, care for your dog as well, but I think he's safe out there in the car, but, you know, you can't bring your dog in either sometimes, especially when he's dealing with his current problems. Yes. He... Current problems are, of course, he had uh, complete kidney failure in December. He was in the hospital for a month. Mm -hmm. um, that was a very, very stressful month for Kyla. Stressful for me, too. We both went and visited. Kyla went every day to visit him. I went when she was out of town to visit him. Um, and ultimately, he survived, and nobody thought he was going to survive, and he survived. And it was uh, like the really professional care of the people at Canada West uh, Veterinary Hospital. Um, and... Um, now that he's back, he's got some other problems that may be associated with it, and he's just got a little bit too much energy, and he's on a complete vegetarian diet probably for the rest of his life. And I think part of the thing is that he's just so angry about the vegetarian diet. Oh, yeah. But he I think he's also really got... really just wants meat. Yeah, I think he's also got... Um, I think he's also stressed from the experience, and he's probably... Yeah, I think he's he has post-traumatic stress I disorder. Does, I want to yeah. get him a dog counselor. If any listeners to the Driving Law podcast know a dog counselor... I'm his, I'm his dog counselor. Yeah, yeah great counseling. <laughs> we talk it, we talk it out. You we talk it out. You, you listeners can't see this, but I just got the dirtiest look I may have ever gotten from Paul Doroshenko in the entire, like, ten years that I've known him. I'm not happy about that. I'm a good dog counselor. Okay, moving on topics. Last week we talked a little bit about money laundering. Money, 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 money. Give me some money. Stop getting me wrong. Start getting me right. We don't need to add a musical intro. We have you. 
I'm just singing from um, <laughs> from Spinal Tap. Okay. Pound notes, loose change, bad checks, anything. Give me some money. Wow. Okay. Next week, I'm getting a different guess. I'm sure you are. Yeah. yeah. Um, money laundering and. Uh, since we talked last um, Wednesday, the money laundering report was released that fully detailed the impact of money laundering to the tune of seven and a half billion dollars. And lots in the cars. Lots in the cars. I was really surprised. Yes, uh, none in the horses. Well, there was an but they're like, but there's of lots that. of lots of chances to launder it in the horses. So yeah. <laughs> it's I know. like, uh, why would you say like that? that? Well, they, <laughs> I didn't even them. know they were looking at horses until they came out and said, and we looked at horses too, by the way. Lots of opportunity to launder money there, but nobody's taken it yet. It was interesting because the uh, trap. Peter German's group, whoever went out and did those interviews, were able to find lots of car dealers who just like gave it up and explained it all. And, yeah, this yeah. is what's going on. This is what's going on. This, and I, I admire them for doing it. Yeah. They, this is not. That was not a. It was an inquiry. Well, everybody wants an inquiry. It was an inquiry of sorts. They couldn't subpoena anybody. Um, but he found volunteers who were willing to talk about it, and he found car dealers, car salesmen. Um, and uh, it was surprising because some of the ways that they did it were fascinating. Like the $25,000 deposit on a car and then coming back three yeah. days later and saying, you know what, I'm not going to buy that car. And, like, I thought some of the deposit would be forfeit maybe in the contract but no none of the deposit was forfeit and the and the car dealership would write a check back yeah. for 25 grand so you could bring in 25 grand literally launder 75,000 a week just by hitting up three separate car dealerships Monday well, Wednesday Friday yeah well I think somebody would probably figure that out but I mean it was a fairly easy way to launder $25,000 uh, up to depending on what you're putting your money on but you could put your money on other cars too you might spend an hour or two at a dealership um, but it was interesting because the, uh, the, uh, one of the things that the dealers felt was an indication of money laundering is guys coming in and not really negotiating hard on the price, um, and then, um, not financing it. Yeah. I don't know. Did you negotiate hard on the price of the last car you bought? I negotiated, but like it wasn't Not hard though. No, I, I got the price down. I knew what's, I knew what they would, where they would go. And each car that I've had, I had my number in mind. I know where they're going to go. I mean, it's a car sales is a bit of a scam, right? Yeah. Um, we don't operate. Apologies on, to all my car sales. Clients. No, but I mean, <laughs> we don't operate on a sliding scale in our office. We basically have fixed rates yep. for the things that we do. And we do that because we think it's fair. And it's part of the reason that we do it also is because we had the experience of the car dealership. But yeah, I mean, both of the cars, the last two cars I bought, actually every car I bought, I haven't financed a car. I bought every car with not cash, like a check, but gone in there and just paid it. Yeah. But I mean, we're talking people coming in with like the duffel bag, the briefcase of cash. Oh, no, I know. But it's just, it's surprise. It's not surprising to me that people don't haggle because if you are well-heeled, you know, these are luxury car dealers they're looking at. They're not looking at, you know, the Honda dealership. Um, if you have money and you're busy earning your money, you're busy because you're some important business dude who businesses stuff, 
I don't know. That was part of the reason I didn't, I, you yeah, know, exactly. had my number. I remember you call, telling Here's me that. My number. You're saying, I'm walking away this, if you can't do my number. I'm going to pay this, yeah. and if you don't want it, then I'm going to leave. Like, you even came with me to buy a car, and you said, this is what we're willing to pay, and not a penny more. And they were like, okay, but we have to charge you dock fees. And you're like, nope. And we walked out of there. Yeah. And just because we didn't have enough time. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm not going to piss around with that. No, it's a waste of your time, waste of my time. Time out of the office is lost time generated, you know, doing work that generates money to pay for the office and pay the staff. And well, also that our ourselves. clients are paying us to do. Exactly. Um, so, you know, it's, uh, to me, it's not surprising that people don't haggle. If you and think I, about. But, I, yeah, but think about some of our clients who are like wealthy clients. And they often will come in and demand a discount. And, you know, you're sitting there thinking to yourself, okay, the uh, the uh, person who works three jobs and has that ticket and, one of the, you know, and drives for a living in one of those jobs is not here trying to grind me down. And then this person in their Range Rover and, you know, whatever is here trying to grind me down and wasting half their day trying to grind me down and having me say no, 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 no. Well, then I, I can't explain it, Paul. Um, there's also, though, like so little oversight on people buying cars. Um, I think about my car that I recently purchased. I did not, I was not involved in any way. You weren't there. I was not You didn't test there. drive it. You didn't, didn't sign any it. papers. I didn't sign any papers. Somebody went in. They just told the car dealer that they were authorized on behalf of my company. There was no effort to check that out. A, a check was written from a different company to pay for it. And the, the car was handed over. Well, I mean, they didn't care. All they wanted was the money. No, I know. They didn't care. You just signed, signed away. And if, like, could have put, it, could have put it in anybody else's name. Could have put it, you could have gone in there and said, oh, yeah, I'm friends with Bill. I'm buying a car for Bill. Yeah. Here, I'm here on behalf of Bill. Like that is, that is a problem. And when, when I, when it happened, I was surprised that it was able to be done that way. I thought, oh, let's just try this. See what, see if it works. I'm I, I couldn't, I couldn't believe it. Yeah. yeah. Anyway. Um, so. And drove away with that, that car without. Drove away in it. Yeah. Yeah. You drove it. Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. So. Anyway. So. I don't know. I, so we suspected this was happening. Yeah, I, I mean, it makes it obvious. As a result of that. <laughs> well, if anybody can show up at a car dealer, buy a car for somebody else, pay with a third-party account, and nobody asks any questions. Yeah, you got to think that it's uh, going on more widely than just at one car dealership. But I wanted to broaden our money laundering discussion from cars. The cars was the lead into it, but I wanted to broaden it to something else that interested me. Um, in the report, which was in relation to lawyers. Oh, oh, you're going to start slamming the lawyers now, Kyla? I'm not slamming lawyers. I actually wanted this to This is driving have, law. This is driving law. This is the law part of driving law. We're talking okay. about lawyers. Okay. <laughs> um, there was aspects of the report, two aspects of the report that I wanted to talk to you about. The first was um, the authors expressed concern that there's no restrictions on lawyers taking cash. You know, there's the $7,500 rule, but you can still take more than that if it's for fees or if it's for bail hearings. 
And I wanted to talk to you. You've been a criminal lawyer for 20 years. 19. 20? But it's 20 years since I started doing this. So I articled in 1999, starting right now. Oh, were you called in 2000? I was called in 2000. Oh, sorry. Okay, well, 19 years then. But you... Well, I've been in this world of... Like how running often, around and going in court. How often is it that a client's coming into your office paying you money into trust in cash for their bail? Never. Um, One time that I've been working for you. Yeah, it's pretty rare. It was, and that was an exceptional it was, circumstance. It, was it a, like $500 or something like that? Where, no, it was $10,000. Was it? Oh, yeah. okay. It's pretty rare. I remember because I, I had remember. to how check the rule. Pay? How do they pay? Cash. Do they? Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's... I don't remember. And then we took it to court registry. Yeah. Um, I remember looking at the rule, and I actually had an interesting thing where the Law Society years ago thought I ran afoul of the uh, $7,500 rule. And I hadn't. I had done a really close, good read of the uh, of the rules, and I had done fine. I hadn't done anything wrong, but I had to explain it back to them mm-hmm. um, at the time that I didn't. And um, um, I guess my conclusion on that basis was that they are watching so closely for violations of the cash rules that I'm still fairly confident that there's not a whole lot of violations of the cash rules. But I also understand, like, there was a Law Society auditor I spoke with who I got to know, uh, and he told me at very large firms, they basically don't do any audit. Right. Um, and they don't do any audit because they assume that they're doing everything correctly. <laughs> and because the, the um, size of the firms makes it sort of prohibitive to audit. So, like, firms like our size are going to get audited. Big firms with uh, 100 lawyers or 75 lawyers or whatever and three floors of an office tower are not going to get audited. And so I don't know what they do in those circumstances, but one would think that you know, those people who are running the accounting departments of those firms are, like, thinking about the rules every day. Presumably they hire people whose job it is to think about the rules every day. Well, we do that too, we also but do, we but... also deal with a, you know, different setup. But the um, we also very rarely take cash, and anytime we do take cash, it's always a small amount, and it's always for legal fees. Like, it's exceptional that it would not be for legal fees and that you're thinking of the one exception i can think of yeah i just i can't think of it because i I don't remember it (laughs) see i just think it's you know pointing out that these are these are loopholes that could be exploited it's it's literally impossible to exploit the no cash rule and pay a lawyer money into trusting cash for your bail um and then somehow launder it because you would have to get In order for that to happen, you would have to get arrested for a serious enough offense and have a serious enough record and antecedents that you would be subject to cash bail, which, of course, the Supreme Court of Canada said is like cash bail is like the last resort before detention. Well, we see it less and less. When I first started practicing, cash bail was pretty often. I never had a client who's had to put up cash for bail. Well, the interesting thing is... Oh, no, that's not true. One time. In my career, I've noticed that bail is uh, much easier to get now, in at least in British Columbia, than it's ever been. Well, the Supreme uh, the Court of Canada. Well, I know, and there's good reasons that the court has has clarified that and 
and prosecutors don't often seek detention the way that they used to. Um, it used to be a big battle, and I used to conduct bail hearings like I used to conduct bail hearings two times, three times a week, and I was not legal aid like I was paid counsel, and people were coming to us for bail hearings all the time. Yeah, um, and that really just doesn't happen uh, like it used to. It's pretty infrequent that you've got to like actually conduct a bail hearing for somebody. I know but, I'm like seven years at the bar, and I can count on one hand the number of number of bail hearings I've done, and I call myself a criminal lawyer. Yeah, well, I was a few months in as a criminal lawyer, and I run out of fingers on my hands at that point because yeah. we used to do it all the time. But the um, and, and and a lot of times it was negotiated out, but it was a lot of times you had to actually go in there and do the full Monty. And um, the uh, when I think back, you know, I've had very few clients who didn't abide by their conditions. Like, on on balance, the vast majority of clients abided by their conditions, except the no contacts and spousals, which usually it takes a week or two before they get their shit together and figure out that they can't talk to that person. Yeah. But, like, I mean, what, who is who has that much money to launder, like, Meng Wanzhou is, you know, I think she's got, like, a million dollars bail, and there's, like, 100000 or 200000 cash or something. Chump change for her, but... Well, yeah. yeah, chump change for her, and that's part of the reason why it's so high, is because it has to be, it has to be high enough to deter her from breaching, given the, you know, significant that, light that's, risk. That's blah, no blah, deterrent blah. from breaching for her. That's no deterrent at all a from million, breaching, a, but... A million but dollars to a billionaire. What are you going to do? 20 bucks to... Oh, I know, but what are you going to do? Are you not going to give somebody bail because they're rich, you know? You, yeah. you have to give them bail. Well, no, I, I know. And she's an exception to the, you know, to the general rule that you don't impose cash bail because you have to... Anyway, we don't need to talk about that. What I mean to say is that there's not a person out there who is going to get a cash bail order with deposit where they have to put enough money that it's worthwhile to go out and deliberately get arrested for a criminal offense that they could ultimately be convicted of just to launder that amount of money. Oh, using it to launder money. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, That's no, I'm sorry. I'm I wasn't making. following. I just thought, I thought you were talking about the lawyer's it's aspect of it. So, the, the yeah, the accusation. You can launder so, money but, that but, way. Yeah, but you better clarify this. So, the accusation is, or the suggestion was, that you could go get arrested, bring in. Uh, cash to your lawyer, your lawyer would pay the bail to the court, and then you'd get the bail money back when at, at the end in a check from at the, the court. So like, okay, I managed to narrowly avoid conviction on an offense. I managed to pay some bail. Or, <laughs> I, or got I got convicted in court. and I yeah. served by several yeah. years in jail. <laughs> I, I got to stand in the docket there and get my lawyer to agree to as much bail money as I could possibly launder. I mean, that was, that was, oh, I mean, and, and that, also, that was a ridiculous like the, thing the to suggest. The trade-off they, they, for the legal whoever, fees. They just hadn't thought it through, no, whoever it was. No, it's ridiculous. It was ridiculous. I was just reading that and I was like, this makes no sense. But it's, you know, your your suggestion, when I talk about the $25,000 deposit example in there, and you you saying that you could do that $75,000 a week, that's also impossible. I mean, you, you're not... You, you have to go into the car dealership. You got to hang out there for a while. You got to make a deal on a car, more or less. You've got to say, okay, well, I'll, I'll hold it. I got to go talk to my dad, and then you've got to come back three days later and get your seventy-five. I mean, I could see somebody doing it for small amounts to get the check back, but I think um, you know, nothing, nothing touches, nothing is like real estate. 
I mean, there's Ferraris that are worth hundreds of thousands of dollars or Bugattis or something like that, and I could see people doing it. Yeah, you go to the Bugatti dealership, then you go to the Jaguar dealership, then you go to the Lamborghini Jaguar dealership. dealership. That's chump yeah, change. Yeah, I know. Right? <laughs> the, um, <laughs> what what Jag are you buying? And the Bugatti the Bugatti dealership is the uh, Lamborghini dealership. So. They're both Volkswagens. Okay, well, I'm not shopping at these places, so I don't know who sells where, okay? Bentley, and then and that's a Volkswagen, too. They're all Volkswagens. Well, look, Porsche, Paul, it's I'm, a Volkswagen. I'm not shopping at the luxury car dealerships to know which ones are all amalgamated. Right, you go. Well, you enjoy your Corolla. <laughs> um, the other thing I wanted to ask you, I said two things about the money laundering. The second thing is... There is a concern expressed in the report that says that there's a small group of lawyers. Presumably they have their eye on them. The ones with the, like, the curly mustaches and the and the big top hats and the cloaks. Yeah, you can hear them coming because they go... Nyak, the nyak, monocle, nyak. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, they, they say that there's a small group of lawyers who are essentially letting this happen through their trust accounts. And I thought, did you have any suggestions for what could be done recognizing that you have to protect privilege by not revealing information to law enforcement about what comes and goes in a trust account and from whom but what what would you do to prevent lawyers trust accounts from being vulnerable to abuse by people who want to launder money you know i i was asked this question on twitter too and uh, you were the one who rohanna asked i don't know and if i you stole responded. it for our podcast thank you rohanna <laughs> rohanna is a wonderful guy thank you rohanna i'm glad you're out there um the um i won't answer that and i didn't answer it on twitter either because i don't think the there's, there's lots of things that i feel equipped to answer uh, I went on Simi Sarah today to talk about um, whether or not we should have an inquiry in BC into money laundering and so Too forth. expensive. Well, I, I guess I persuaded you, but the I didn't uh, listen. That was my conclusion before. Okay, but the um, the and I, and I feel equipped to speak to that. I mean, I'm a citizen who's been monitoring this for a long time. I'm not, you know, I'm I'm aware of the housing market and everything. I have knowledge about the functioning of the legal system, and I feel that I'm equipped to speak to that. Um, but Speaking to the steps that the law society could take with respect to modifying rules that govern lawyers in accounting principles uh, for the purpose of addressing this one issue of the suggestion that some lawyers are exploiting uh, these things. Or being exploited. Or being exploited. I'm not really comfortable with that, uh, answering that flippantly, because I... I, uh, I look at the rules that are there and I think they're fairly thoughtful. I think they are in some respects overly restrictive. Um, yep. And um, then I'm wondering, I guess, what I want to know is who those lawyers were. Yeah. And that's... I feel like know, as a lawyer, we have a right to know. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm I'm worried because I'm, I have to deal with those people. Um, I, if I'm dealing with another lawyer, I operate under the assumption that I can trust that other lawyer. And I generally can. I mean, there's times that I learn to grow to, to learn that there's people I can't trust, but the uh, for the most part, I always start with the assumption that I really trust that person. And those people who I don't trust, I actually just generally trust as well. I just, you know, on certain aspects of things in a case, they, I'm, I can't, ex you know, I have, my expectations are not always what they are, and everybody's different, and that's fair too. 
Um, but I, I think in the circumstances where the bare allegation is made about certain law firms or certain lawyers um, in, that, um, in that report, maybe, you know, if maybe. the Law Society knows it, I think, like, we should know because I'm not... Well, I was going to say maybe barring one certain lawyer who ran for mayor of Richmond... Well, that's the thing. Yeah, I mean, we, you know, some have obvious. been notorious in the news or something like that, uh, or who have ongoing, like, significant, serious struggles with the law society, not your, you know, meat and potatoes things that many of us deal with from time to time. Um, yeah, I could see that. But the um, it does concern me that, uh, that this allegation is made in these reports, uh, and yet we don't know who it is. And, you know, my mind starts to race and I start wondering who is it who is it who is it is it is it one of those big firms that's never gets audited is it some small firm that only does tons and tons of real estate transactions is it you know who's doing it we don't do real estate transactions and right now I'm thinking glad we don't yes because the well, heat, the heat is on I'm going to the heat is on lawyers I'm all going, the time I'm, but the heat is I'm on. going to flippantly answer as you so nicely characterized it, knowing that I had crafted an answer. I didn't assume that you crafted an answer. I thought you were looking to the wise, the wise 19 years of lawyering Paul over here for the answer. No, I wanted to run my thought by you. It was a joke. You always have some answer. I've got an answer for everything. It's a complaint you often make about me. I know. Um, (laughs) The, no, the law society could create its own investigative body to deal with you know looking at what goes into trust accounts and whether or not it's going in there for a criminal purpose that is to launder money um there is there are exceptions to privilege where there are criminal purposes involved and the investigative body could report to the law society who could make a determination about whether it was for a criminal purpose and whether privilege applied and then potentially report it to the authorities. Or alternatively, the law society could discipline the lawyers to make sure that the lawyers are, unless you're 100% sure the money's going in for something directly related to the legal services you're providing, you're not taking money into your trust account, just somebody coming in and dropping off a briefcase full of cash just in case. Which, by the way, is not something you can accept as a lawyer. Well, that's the, just the thing. In case it's all, that is all just already regulated. And that's all already there. So, uh, and to create uh, yet another investigative body within the law society to me is unnecessary. I mean, if there's a few lawyers who have been doing this, let the law society know, send them out there, uh, tell them who they think they are. Everybody else, except for those, you know, big firms are going to be subject to an audit every five years. Um, and sometimes a spot audit, if there's any reason to, to do it, I mean, it can happen from some other triggering event. So, you know, just do the audit. Do the audit. Well, I'm, I, that's, I, I'll, okay. I'll tell you, I have confidence generally in the law society's ability to, to regulate that. And I'm, so I'm concerned okay. about it because okay. some lawyers have been impugned just generally without saying who they are. Yeah. And I, mean, I, I, don't and like I want it to be investigated as a member and as a citizen impugning the impugning of our profession yeah i didn't like that um but i you know i i think if you're going to make that allegation talk to the law societies you're doing it that's the xrcmp officer in peter german coming out 
well, maybe he, you know, a, a lot of police officers don't like lawyers. Yeah. And they also seem to think that all lawyers are shifty. And, shifty. Uh, it's a fascinating thing because they're one step away um, from the lawyers. The lawyers we deal with in traffic court don't feel that way because why? They deal with us. You said lawyers, but you meant cops. The cops, the police officers we deal with in traffic court don't feel that way because we deal with them yep. in court and we're fair with them and fair with them in the hallway. Yep, and they know that we're straight up. Anyway, that is our driving law podcast, money laundering, babies in cars, legislation that's not necessary, and cell phone enforcement. Tune in next week for more exciting topics and a different guest because Paul's musical interlude was just... I that can't bad. even. Is that bad? If you want to reach out to us about any of these issues or anything else driving related, you can find us online, VancouverCriminalLaw.com, or give us a call, 604-685-8889. Look, if you don't like it, just edit it out, okay? Okay. <laughs>